Our scripture reading today comes from John 4, uh, verses 43 through 54. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done at Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering so he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Good morning, Christ community. My name is Brent, and I am a pastoral resident here at the Leewood campus. So thank you so much to uh, you guys for your support of that program and your heart for training up pastors, uh, the next generation of pastors. It really has been great for me and my family. Uh, do you know what drives us crazy when we see it in other people, but we do it often ourselves as soon as we get the chance? Name dropping. You know what I'm talking about? You have that obnoxious coworker who went to high school with some now famous celebrity and they're always reminding you about it. Or your brother-in-law who went to a concert and got to meet the band backstage once and brings it up every Thanksgiving. Or your friend whose sister's ex-boyfriend's cousin once pitched for the Royals and you're like, why are you telling me this story again? It drives us crazy, doesn't it? But speaking of name dropping, did, did you guys know that I met Kurt Thompson once? When he was here last fall, yeah, I, I, I don't mean to, I just got to say hello and shake his hand. I mean, I got to spend some one-on-one -on -one time with him uh, when, when we were in the car together. And uh, Kurt, Kurt is a Christian psychiatrist who's written some uh, really great books about uh, the soul and shame and desire. And we invited him here to Kansas City last year to do some seminars for our congregation as well as our staff and some counselors in the Kansas City area. And while Kurt was here, he needed someone to pick him up from his hotel room each morning and get him coffee and drive him to his speaking engagements. And, and they don't trust a job like that with just anyone. <laughs> so, so if you've been wondering to yourself, you're like, why is Brent such an emotionally healthy person? It's, it's probably those ten, two 10-minute ten drives I had with Kurt in a car. So we're pretty much best friends now, I think. <laughs> or how about, how about bandwagon fans? Do they drive you crazy? I mean, where are all the Royals fans now that used to fill the stadium in 2015? And everyone likes the Chiefs now that they're good, but where, where were you all those years when they stunk? I, I guess that's the good thing for me about being a Chicago Bears fan, you know? <laughs> There's no bandwagon fans for lousy teams, so. And why am I talking about, about all this? Well, we're, we're in, this series, in a series in the Gospel of John right now. We're calling Word Made Flesh, and we're at the point in Jesus' ministry 
where he's, about, he's, he's become something of a celebrity. His PR is going through the roof, and he's attracting crowds everywhere he goes. And some, of these, some in the crowd are true followers, and some are just bandwagon fans. In, in our story today, uh, Jesus is returning home. And you know what it's like when a celebrity returns to their small hometown, right? People are excited, and they turn out to see him. They know he's done things like turn water into wine, and maybe they're hoping he'll repeat that miracle. And, and they've seen him confront the religious establishment in the temple in Jerusalem. And they're here to see what he will do next. At this moment in the story, Jesus is about as popular as he's going to be. And everyone's jumping on the bandwagon and sharing stories about what it was like to have PE class with him in the seventh grade. But, but Jesus isn't after popularity. He, he's not after bandwagon fans. He's not looking for those things. He's after something different. He's after faith. What kind of faith is Jesus after? What kind of faith is Jesus looking for from us? Our story today demonstrates two kinds of faith. The first kind of faith is basically just gawking. It's the faith of a celebrity-obsessed fan. It observes Jesus from afar. It's even impressed by Jesus and acknowledges that Jesus is uniquely special. But, but this kind of faith is really just here to see the show, to see what Jesus can do without any kind of personal commitment. But there's a second kind of faith demonstrated in this story. It's a faith that takes risks, a faith that persists, and a faith that trusts. Jesus is deeply critical of the first kind of faith, but he affirms the second kind. The second kind of faith, trusting faith, is what Jesus is after. So let's dive into our story and see what it looks like. But first, let's orient ourselves to what's been happening so far in the Gospel of John. Remember, this is all one continuous story, and so there's a, there's a plot here that's going. So verse 43 tells us that Jesus has just returned to Galilee. And if you remember way back in chapter 2, Jesus had gone to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And Jerusalem is down in kind of the orange section in Judea there, uh, toward the bottom of the map. And this story actually kind of, actually in some ways picks up right where that one left off. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But while Jesus was in Jerusalem, he confronted the religious leaders in the temple. He drove out the people who had created a market in the temple courts. And then later, he had a conversation at night with a religious leader named Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you'll remember, was the ultimate religious insider. You know, seminary trained, years of experience in ministry. He knows his Bible backwards and forwards and is deeply committed to living faithfully before God, at least so far as he understands what that looks like. And we don't find out what happened to Nicodemus until the end of the book, but what we know at this point is that the man with all the religious advantages struggled to comprehend Jesus' teaching. And then in chapter 4, we get his opposite. You know, Jesus, he's on his way back from Jerusalem to Galilee. Galilee is the yellow section at the top where Jesus grew up. And he stops to spend some time with the hated Samaritans in Samaria. There's that blue section there in the middle of the map. So he's on his way home. He's heading back home, heading through Samaria. And while he's there, he meets a woman who has none of the religious advantages of Nicodemus. But, but she recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah, and she gathers the town to hear Jesus teach. And Jesus stays in the village for two days, and through his teaching and the testimony of this woman, many of the villagers place their faith in Jesus. And that leads to our story today. But before we actually pick up the story in verse 43, I want to jump back again to the end of chapter 2. 
back to after Jesus cleared the temple, but before he had left Jerusalem. There are three verses at the end of chapter 2 that I conveniently skipped when we covered the temple clearing story last month. And these verses are important because they help us understand what faith is. And they also provide some important background for how we should read our story today in chapter 4 where we'll spend most of our time. So let's look briefly at John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Again, these verses occurred right after Jesus had cleared the temple. It says, Now, while he was in Jerusalem for the, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. There are two things I want you to see here. First, do you see the words believed and entrust in, the, in, the, in the, you know, the second line there and the fourth line? In English, those are, those are two different words that have a little bit different meanings. But in Greek, which is the, the language that the Gospel of John was originally written in, that's the exact same word, believe and entrust. So, uh, so when we hear the word believe, we often think of something that's purely a mental process. You know, we believe that something is true or is not true. Or maybe it's wishful thinking. You know, I just believe in my heart that everything will be okay. But either way, believing is something that primarily affects my thinking, at least how we often think about that word. But those definitions don't, don't really work here. You know, we, we might say that the people believed in Jesus in that way. You know, they believed that he was the Messiah, but, but what would it mean that Jesus believed in them? Belief doesn't, doesn't really work. It doesn't work to, to capture the, the nuance here. I think the ESV actually gets it, gets it perfectly uh, by using the word entrust in the second, the second uh, instance there. Maybe they should have even used it in both instances. Jesus, Jesus doesn't trust these people. They're beginning to trust him, but he doesn't trust them. So what's the difference between believing and trusting in the way that we think about them uh, in our world? Well, trusting usually has an action or a risk involved. It's one thing to believe that your 16-year-old won't crash the car, but it's another to entrust him with your keys, right? Trusting my bank means that I give them my paycheck each week with the assumption that they'll give it back to me when I need it. And trusting your doctor may mean submitting to a painful procedure right now because you know it's better for you in the long run. So trusting takes action and it involves risk. Trust is an important part of what the Bible means by belief or faith. It's, it's belief accompanied by action. I'm reading a book right now written by a New Testament scholar named Klein Snodgrass, and he talks about this Greek word. The Greek word is pistis, which we usually translate as faith or belief. It's the same, the same word we have here in, uh, in John chapter 2, and we'll see again in John chapter 4. He says this, says, pistis was not a particularly religious word in the Hellenistic Greek world. That's the world that this all takes place in. It most often had to do with relations and business and political contexts. It is most of all a relational word having to do with trust and pledges of trust and is not about what we do with our minds. It is about how one acts in a relation. Consequently, it often carries connotations of faithfulness, loyalty, fidelity, allegiance, reliability, trustworthiness, commitment, confidence, proof, and, and pledge. I know that paragraph was a mouthful. It was a mouthful for me just trying to say it. But, but here's the point. 
When we see the word faith or believe in the Bible, we should be thinking about this a larger idea than just mental assent to an idea. It includes things like faithfulness, loyalty, fidelity, allegiance, reliability, and so on. That's kind of the, 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 the idea behind that word. You see how that has a much bigger and richer meaning than just do I agree with a fact. And here's the second thing I want you to see in, in these verses. There seems to be a sense here, and how, at least how I'm reading it, that there's a critique of the kind of faith that these people have in Jesus. Their trust is based on signs that, that Jesus was doing in Jerusalem. And Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them because he knows that that kind of faith, that kind of a celebrity or a bandwagon faith, it's based on signs and wonders that that kind of faith is deficient. And we see that idea picked up again in our story in chapter 4, where, where it's contrasted with the kind of faith that Jesus is after. So if you're not already there in your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4, verse 43. This story picks up chronologically where we left off last week, with Andrew talked about Jesus in Samaria. But thematically, it picks up on the ideas about faith and trust from chapter 2. So let's jump in. After two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So they were among those people that, that trusted Jesus in this way. So Jesus is coming back from, uh, on his journey, back after spending two days in Samaria. And the Galileans, they had been with Jesus there in Jerusalem. So it's picking up right where we left off in chapter 2. And they believe in Jesus because of the signs that he's performing. And then there's this weird statement in verse 44, in parentheses. Do you see that? Jesus says that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. But the very next thing that we see in verse 45 is that when he came home, the Galileans welcomed him. So how do we make sense of that? I think it's giving us a hint for how to read the story that follows. The enthusiastic welcome that Jesus receives in Galilee is based on the same kind of faith, deficient faith, that we saw at the end of chapter 2. That kind of faith was based on miraculous signs. Look at the amazing things Jesus can do. Jesus, as we've said, is like, he's like a small-town celebrity being welcomed back home. But, but verse 44 is a hint that while the people are excited about his signs and about his celebrity, maybe they haven't yet fully, uh, don't have a fully formed faith that's ready to entrust themselves to Jesus yet. But there is someone who does have the kind of faith that Jesus is after. And as so often happens around Jesus, it's not the person that we would expect. Let's keep reading. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And there are a couple of important details here that are easy to miss. So let's start with who this guy is. We're told that he's an official. Um, Other translations will flesh that out a little bit and say he's a royal official. He He has some kind of government job and he works in the city of Capernaum. That means that he's either, he's almost certainly either a Roman government official, which would make him a Gentile. He's a kind of a foreigner who's working for the Roman, the oppressive Roman Empire. Or he's a Jewish man who's working for Herod Antipas, who was uh, the, who ruled that region as a Roman puppet king. And if that's the case, then he would have been seen by many Jews as a traitor, or at least highly suspicious, and his orthodoxy might even be questioned. 
For a, for a plethora of reasons, the Herods were not popular among most Jews. So working for Herod would not endear this man to most of the people around Jesus. So keep, in, keep that in mind when we see how Jesus interacts with him. Whatever his, his ethnicity, whether he's a Gentile or a Jew, he's probably not a sympathetic figure to the people that have crowded around Jesus. And the second detail we should notice is geographic. We're told the names of two cities, Cana and Capernaum. And I know sometimes our eyes glaze over when we come across place names in the Bible, but, but the biblical writers would not have included them if they weren't important. So, so what's the significance of these locations? Let's look at a, a zoomed-in map this time. And you can see uh, Cana and Capernaum, they're both in Galilee, but they're not all that close to each other. Uh, Cana's off kind of to the, to the west, not, not too far from Samaria, down south. And then Capernaum is up just to the north of the Sea of Galilee there. It's about a, a 20-mile distance between the two of them. And that, that doesn't seem like much to us today, but it's a full day's journey in the first century if you're walking, which is what most people would have done. If you want to imagine walking 20 miles, imagine that after the church service today, instead of getting in your car in the parking lot, you just head out to Kenneth Road, walk out there, and then you turn left to head north up Kenneth, and you follow Kenneth all the way up until where it hits State Line. And then keep going on State Line Road north. And follow that. Keep walking all the way up to 435. And then take the entrance ramp onto 435. Don't actually do this because this is dangerous and illegal. <laughs> but take the entrance ramp onto 435 and take that all the way to 71, and then 71 North. And then jump on 71 North. Take that all the way to downtown Kansas City. And then get off the highway and walk to the World War I Museum. That's, that's a 20-mile walk. That's a long way. And, it's, and Israel in the first century is a lot hillier than Kansas City. So this is a pretty, a pretty big commitment and a long journey. So there's a lot of risk involved for this man. It's, it's a long walk, but also his son could die while he's gone. I mean, the son's really sick, and it would be tragic for him not to be at his bedside when that happens. Or by the time he gets to, to, he has heard that Jesus is in Cana and then travels there to meet him, Jesus could have moved on somewhere else. He, he could miss Jesus entirely. Or Jesus might not grant his request. After all, remember who this guy is. He's a government official and he's probably not popular among most Jews. He, he's not the kind of person that a typical Jewish rabbi may be inclined to help. But he takes the risk. He goes to Cana and he makes a bold request of Jesus. Come with me and heal my son. What this guy demonstrates is that true faith goes to Jesus even when the results are uncertain. True faith goes to Jesus even when the results are uncertain. Do we have faith to ask Jesus? I'm not saying that if we have enough faith, then Jesus will give us what we want. Or that if you didn't get what you asked for, then you didn't have enough faith. Some of us have, been, have had deeply painful experiences in religious communities where we were told that kind of thing. I'm not saying that. I'm just asking, are you asking? One of my main takeaways from the E90 initiative has been to ask myself why I wasn't more persistent in praying for my nine before the initiative. Did I not care enough for them? Did I not have faith that Jesus could change their hearts? Maybe a little of both, but we have to care enough and we have to have faith enough to ask. And that brings us to Jesus' response. And it's not what I would expect. I expect Jesus to say, hey, yes, I'll come with you, or no, I won't. But here's what he says, verse 48. So Jesus said to him, 
Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. What, what's going on here? Is, is Jesus rebuking this man in the midst of his grief over his dying son? Is now really the right time for that, Jesus? If you have an ESV Bible, which is the translation we use here on Sunday, you should see a little note in this verse that tells you that the word you is plural. Both times it's used. The NIV, I think, translates it better. It says, unless you people see signs and wonders. And that captures exactly what Jesus means. He's speaking to the man. Jesus does say these words to him. But really, he's addressing the Galilean crowd around him. They all believe because of the signs and wonders, but do they really trust Jesus? Remember that John hinted at this back in chapter 2 when he said that Jesus did not entrust himself to them. And in 444, when he said that a prophet has no honor in his hometown, Jesus is drawing a contrast. He says, y'all are just here for a show, but this man, he has real faith. Does this man need a sign in order to believe? No, his 20-mile journey demonstrates that he already believes. It took a lot of faith for this man to track Jesus down. It was a risk. I, think, I don't think Jesus uh, doubts his faith. And I think Jesus knows exactly how things are going to turn out for him and for his boy. But he uses this moment to draw a lesson for the crowd. Really to rebuke them for wanting Jesus to prove himself with yet another act of power. But the man persists, and his persistence continues to demonstrate his faith. Verse 49, the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. He actually has the audacity to give Jesus a command. You might think it's pretty presumptuous for someone to order Jesus around. But he's a desperate parent who believes Jesus is the only hope for his son. This is him saying, Jesus, you have to do something or my son will die. Child mortality rates were incredibly high in the first century. One estimate that I came across said that only 49% of children survive to the age of five. That's heartbreaking. This guy's son is very sick, and he has good reason to be very, very concerned. And so he asks Jesus, and he keeps asking. True faith asks, and then keeps asking. So what have we given up asking God for? Again, just because we're persistent doesn't mean that God will grant a request. You know, God is not like a parent on spring break who gets worn down by constant requests from bored children. You know, fine, go ahead and play another hour of video games. Just stop asking me. We can't twist God's arm into giving us what we want. We, we won't wear him down. But if we've stopped asking because we just don't think that God can heal our chronic pain or bring back our wayward child, or change my boss's heart, or bring peace and justice in our broken world, then maybe we've made our God too small. We need to keep asking. By asking again, the Father demonstrates that he knows that he has nowhere else to go. It's Jesus or bust. Where, where else are we going to go? The Apostle Paul understood that asking and even being told no makes us stronger. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says that he pleaded with the Lord three times to have what he called a thorn in his flesh removed. God's answer was simply, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In our asking, in our weakness, God's power is actually put on display because we have to learn to rest more and more in him. 
And it becomes clear to us and to those around us that it's God who sustains us. As we finish the story, I want you to notice what Jesus does here. Let's read the rest carefully and see how it gets resolved. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that this, that, that, that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. We know what the man wanted when he came to Jesus. He he wanted his son to be healed. But what's he been asking Jesus to do? Verse 47 says, he begged him to come down. In verse 49, he said, come down. He wants Jesus to come with him. And what did we say the crowd wants? They want Jesus to prove himself again. They want to see more exciting signs and wonders. And notice that Jesus doesn't give the man or the crowd exactly what they want. Exactly what they ask for, that is. The crowd doesn't get what they want. I mean, they want to see signs and wonders, but the miracle takes place 20 miles away. Even if they eventually found out what happened, Jesus doesn't give them the satisfaction of seeing it in the moment. But notice also that Jesus does not agree to go with the man. Instead, he gives him an assurance that his son will live. And think about what that means for this father. It means that he will have to turn around and walk 20 miles back home, trusting that Jesus will do what he said. True faith trusts Jesus for the long way home. True faith trusts Jesus for the long way home. It would be a lot more comforting to have Jesus with him on the road, wouldn't it? The man uh, will have Jesus next to him, they talk to him. He won't find out until the next day whether Jesus' words were true. If Jesus comes with him, though, he can, he can keep begging him or he can rely on his compassion for the boy when he sees his suffering with his own eyes. But if Jesus stays behind, all he has is his word. If it doesn't work, is, is he going to go back and track Jesus back down again? Jesus asks this man to exercise an incredible amount of faith to go home without him. The man had faith to ask Jesus. To have, he had faith to persist in asking. And now Jesus asks of him to have the faith to go back home alone with only a word of assurance that his son will live. But for the man, Jesus' word is enough for him. Did you see that in verse 50? The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. This is such a picture of the Christian life, isn't it? We've all come to Jesus in need, you know, perhaps in pain or grief or unfulfilled longing, but we've all come in need of rescue. And we have an encounter with Jesus that leads us to start trusting him. And now we're somewhere on the path between meeting Jesus and the fulfillment of those promises to us. We're, we're not in the crowd anymore. You know, we're not here to gawk and gossip about his power. We've got skin in the game now. But we also don't know if our son is going to live. And you don't know if your marriage is ever going to get better or if your anxiety or depression will ever go away or if your body will ever be healed 
or if justice will rain down and bring peace and healing in our world. But you're trusting Jesus. You're taking him at his word that by the time you get home, it will be okay. Not all of us will have our prayers answered while we're on the path. Many of us, in many ways, all of us, will have to wait until we're home. So will you trust Jesus for the long way home? Are you in the crowd or are you trusting Jesus for the long way home? If you're on the way home, if you've placed your trust in Jesus, I just want to encourage you today. I know it can be a long and difficult journey, but remember that we're on it together. In the difficult places, who are the people in your life who you can lean on? And if you're going strong, are your eyes open to those around you who might need someone to lean on right now. That's one of the reasons that we gather together as a church on Sunday mornings and in smaller groups throughout the week so that we can do this together as a community. And if you're in the crowd, if you're intrigued by Jesus but not really trusting him, what's holding you back? Who is in your life that you can bring your doubt to and have a conversation with? We trust people that we know. How how can you get to know Jesus better? Whether you are in the road, or whether you are on the road, or you have doubts, or you're still in the crowd, there's a prayer in the Bible that all of us can pray. In Mark chapter 9, there's a father who's facing a very similar situation to the father in our story today. He tells Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. Like that, Father, let's all ask Jesus to increase our faith. Finally, don't miss that we're not just like the Father in this story. We're also like the Son, dying and in desperate need of rescue. And we have a Father who sent His Son not to walk just 20 miles, but to cross heaven and earth to be with us and to rescue us, to experience pain and loss and grief just like the rest of us to take our sickness of sin upon himself and to die in our place, giving his life so that we might get ours back and to rise from the dead with the promise to be with us always to the very end of the age, to be with us. We're not walking alone as we walk the long way home. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for your word and the promises that you give us. Like the father in the story today, many of us are on that long way home. Some of us have only just begun and others of us have been on the road for a long time. Thank you that you are with us on the journey. And for those here today who are maybe still hanging out in the crowd, who are intrigued by you, Jesus, who are maybe even fans of your work, I pray that you would make yourself known to them in a new way this week. And I pray that they would take the risk and put their trust in you. And for all of us, increase our faith. Help our unbelief. May we all be able to say together these words of a classic hymn, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise and to know the saith the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.